Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. which is uh, learning my suffering story. Uh, And this is entering uh, phase two, uh, where we are trying to disempower the memory of the experience that we've had. Now, this is not the step where we begin to understand why, uh, but we we realize uh, trauma crashes our life narrative. Life no longer makes sense after a trauma. If the event that happened to you made sense in the way that you approach life, then it might be interesting, sad, shocking, but it wouldn't be traumatic. And again, Diane Langberg, she says, trauma can shatter an entire worldview in less time than it takes for the trauma to occur. And Stephen Tracy says, there's no single correct way Uh, to construct a person's story. Now, as we use this idea of story, uh, which may not be the most natural term for all of us coming in here, I want us to see how we get uh, from from experience uh, to story. And it, it begins with facts. You know, things happen, and they're kind of both real and surreal. Uh, when we go through a trauma, it, it feels bigger than life, but there are facts that are happening. And then after that, uh, there are the emotions that we, that we experience with it. Uh, and those may begin to change uh, over time. Initially, we may be terrified, and then we're angry. And then we're ashamed. But, and at that point, we're not really making sense of it. We're just emotionally responding to it. And then we hit that phase where we're trying to make meaning of it. And we begin to assign roles to people. We begin to believe certain things are possible or not possible. We begin to change what our future aspirations are based upon what's happening to us. Those are the kinds of things that often, after a trauma, that we begin to assign meaning in a way that's destructive. We begin to assign roles to people in a way that just doesn't work. We begin to uh, think of what is possible for us in a very constricted or broken way. Uh, and that's what we, we want to begin uh, to address. And so here, uh, we're going to look at ten themes uh, that we can use to make sense of trauma. Uh, ten kind of broken, destructive themes. Uh, this is not exhaustive, uh, but it's meant to help you say, how would I begin to think through this? Uh, likely these themes began more as feelings than beliefs. But then with time, you begin to articulate those emotions and feelings into propositional statements that you use to guide life. And um, 
here's where I want to give us another caution. We're not going to think our way out of trauma. Trauma's not a riddle that somehow we can just theologically get the Rubik cube back where it's supposed to be, and it's all better. But how we think about things does matter. And so, thinking well about the experience is not going to make everything better, but thinking poorly about things can make things much worse. And so this is the stage where we're trying to disempower the memory by pulling off some of those destructive messages um, that we would attach to that experience. And so first, we'll start with some God themes. And what I would encourage you is to give yourself the freedom to articulate these things. Oftentimes, particularly in a church setting and as Christians, we feel really bad about thinking bad things about God. And this is where, if you'll let me say it this way, I'm glad there is heresy in the Psalms. You know, there are times when the psalmist just straight out rails on God. In Psalm 44, he says, God, why are you asleep at the wheel? We know God doesn't sleep. But God in His grace said, you know what? In the midst of a broken world, there's going to be times when you need to be able to speak words like that. So in that book of the Bible that is uniquely written for you to speak back to me, because most of the rest of the Bible is God speaking to us. It's God saying, here's what I did. Here's what I want you to do. This is who I am. Most of the rest of the Bible is God speaking to us. The Psalms are God giving us words to speak back to Him. And so the fact that there are passages like that in the Psalms, there are actually more Psalms of lament, Psalms of brokenness and confusion and despair, than there are Psalms of praise. Because God wanted us to know that in the midst of a hard world, we could talk to Him honestly about these things. It Putting them into words is what lets you figure out whether you want to accept them. Because again, like we said, I, I win all the arguments in my head. When it comes out of my mouth, not so much. And so putting it into words helps me kind of figure it out. And then also, if I live with the idea that I can't share these hard things with God, then I reinforce the idea that He's kind of a scary bad God that I thought He was to begin with. Yet, you know what means the world to me? is when my kids get a bad grade on a test and they come to me and they say, please don't be mad at me. Why does that mean a lot? Because <laughs> they know I, I want good for them and I don't want them to do poorly on the test, but, but they also believe I'm safe enough to come and to share that with. If they just go to their room scared to death, then it stays in their mind that I'm the scary dad. And so being able to bring that to me is part of refuting what it is that I hope is not true. And that with God isn't true. And so what are some of those themes? One of those themes might just be God is not good. If God made a world where this could happen, He's not good. And think about it this way. Why does Scripture take pains to say that God is good so often? Because he knew we'd need to hear it. 
Why do we tell our kids we love them so often? Because in the midst of all the negative messages in the world, we, in the number of things that would just lead them to think, I'm not lovable, I'm not good enough, that kind of thing, in the midst of a world where it would be easy to doubt, we repeat those messages that are most needed. It's not an impatient going, when are you going to get this through your head that I'm good? It's no, you live in a hard world that is broken. And so it's repeated. Second thing we can begin to believe is that God does not care. You know, here one of my favorite pictures is in John 11. Where uh, Jesus is getting ready to bring Lazarus back from the dead. uh, And it's all of our favorite memory passage. Uh, Jesus wept. uh, Because we could get that one really easy. and We ace a wanna one week, get a freebie. Here's what I love about that. Is Jesus is very different from me. If I knew in three minutes I was about to make everything better, I probably wouldn't cry. I might dance, I might gloat, I might go watch this. I wouldn't cry. Jesus would not withhold himself from our pain for a span of three minutes if it was where we were and what we would need. He cares. Or maybe we think God is just not able to help. And, you know, this is one of those things that's kind of hard to wrestle with. Um, But eliminating trauma would mean eliminating evil. And, And so, a gracious God who wants to see the world redeemed agrees to comfort us in the storm rather than in the story. When he, when he ends trauma will be the point where He wipes every tear from every eye when He shows up and says, show's over. And so, for now, as hard and as confusing as it is, uh, He cares for us in the storm. And then there's the me themes. If, if we don't create an unhealthy story by changing God, the next easiest place to go is by blaming or shaming me. And that seems a little weird. Why would we do that? I think there's a very clear reason why we do that. Control. If it's my fault, I can change it. I will surrender whatever level of personal dignity and narrative coherence that gives me some degree of control over what's going on. And so, I begin to distort me to get what I want most that I don't feel like I have. And I can do by saying, I deserve this. And maybe we do it with a false Christian logic. You know, we all deserve hell, and anything north of hell is more than we deserve, so who am I to complain that this is happening to me? And we don't have to be ultimately and cosmically innocent to not merit trauma. Or... Maybe we say, I'm marred. And we begin to interpret every hardship and difficulty as this is just the kind of things that happens to me. I'm the kind of person this happens to. I guess I'm just that character in the story that things always go bad for 
if I get rejected, people somehow know I've got this mark on my soul, or I don't have the social skills that I need because this happened. And it, it becomes the explanation that sets me up for inevitable failure and rejection because I view myself as marred. Or maybe I just say I'm crazy. And this is where, hopefully you've begun to pick up on it, my caution is don't use pejorative, insulting language to describe your traumatic experience. Um, It's not accurate, uh, and it reinforces an identity of shame. And then there's themes related to other people. Um, It is very easy just to begin to, to label everybody as unsafe. But the problem with that is we can't live with the level of isolation that that brings. And so we get in this nasty cycle where we go back and forth between blind trust and isolation. And so we're in this stage where we've been hurt, and so we're just, we're not, we're going to stay away from people, and we get soul thirsty for relationship. That that when something comes along, we just kind of throw ourselves into it. And there's never a point of allowing a relationship to grow naturally uh, to the point that it could sustain the trust that we place on it. And one of the realities is that even good people will let you down. Not because they want to and not because they're unsafe, but just all of us being fallen and broken people. And when it comes to how do you relate to this idea of people being unsafe, uh, there's a concept here that I'll introduce that I think we can use for any of these. It's the idea that this is both a real experience and an untrue interpretation. So when, when I come up to somebody, and let's say that they're a safe person, and in the midst of beginning to make myself known, I get scared. Is that a real experience? Yes. My heart rate changes. Uh, It begins to go faster. My pupils may dilate a little bit. My palms get cold and sweaty. My thoughts begin to race. That is a real experience. And it is very easy to confuse a real experience with a true interpretation. So when my youngest son was scared of learning how to swim in a swimming pool, and I would take him in the pool, and he would cling to me like a howler monkey. Uh, And he was pretty sure he was going to drown. Was that a real experience of fear? Yes. Was it a true interpretation of his environment? It wasn't. And so this is where, between you and a friend, being able to have that vocabulary, because if they begin to say that's not true, and you hear them say that's not real, and then we get this argument back and forth, and we're not really having the same conversation, that's where things can mire down pretty quickly. And so I think it's an important distinction. And then we have some life themes. You know, there's no way to face trauma without asking some very large theological questions. But we don't ask those questions as students in a classroom trying to figure out the meaning of life. We ask them as survivors who are hanging on for dear life. And so maybe, maybe we just begin to live as if life is meaningless. And it gives us a little bit of relief. 
but it comes at the expense of ever feeling like there's hope. Or maybe we just begin to live as if life is haunted. And, and at one level, that's a, that's a good description. I mean, it does feel like there's just these trigger events that can come up out of nowhere. Um, and, and it's this sense of hauntedness that oftentimes, at least from my experience, I find that Christians are prone to mistake post-traumatic stress for spiritual warfare. And so whenever they finally talk to somebody and it begins, those, like we said, the symptoms get worse before they get better and somebody's offering Scripture and they're trying to help, but the symptoms are getting worse. It's like, oh, look at it. Yeah, it's weird. And, and, you know, the kind of bad dreams and those kind of things. And I think we can look at it and say, whether somebody's a believer or non-believer, when they've experienced a trauma and they have the same kind of responses around that, then that is probably something that is a predictable response to the experience of trauma more than it is a unique activity of our enemy in a given moment. Now that doesn't mean that Satan's not happy to use anything to disrupt our life, and as Satan is happy to work through natural means as any... Yes, but there can become a moment where we begin to aggrandize that moment of trauma as if some kind of power encounter is going to deliver us from it, and when that doesn't work, we feel like God has failed. And I think understanding it as a more common experience, you know, in some ways post-traumatic stress is a common reaction to an uncommon circumstance, uh, is, is a healthier and better way to do that. Uh, and maybe our interpretation is just that evil wins. It becomes a form of surrender. And if in one hand, that just allows us to say, God, I can't, you're going to have to fight this for a while. And our surrender is not to futility and giving up, but just, God, I need you to be my refuge and my help in this moment. Then it's not necessarily bad to come to that point of being uh, at the end of ourselves. Now, if you were to say, what is it that I, I need to do uh, with this material? I hope this material from step four, you could begin to enact a pattern. Uh, that whenever something that is a destructive message that begins to attach to your experience of trauma comes up, what I'd like for you to be able to do is articulate it. Because when it gets outside of our head, especially with somebody that we trust and who knows us, hopefully it's not going to make as much sense. We begin to honestly acknowledge the pain. Again, to me, I hope that is one of the biggest benefits of having this seminar in a church-wide forum. This is something that there has to be a public conversation. Because the experience of trauma only festers in silence. That we can counter it even before we begin to see how we can replace it. And that just gives us a bit of a rhythm that instead of embracing these things, uh, that we can begin to put a little more distance between us and those destructive messages of our suffering story.